Maine's Political Pulse is made possible by Lee Jeep with the new Jeep Wrangler and Grand Cherokee 4xe plug-in hybrid models at Lee Jeep in Auburn and Westbrook. LeeAuto.com. Welcome to Maine's Political Pulse. I'm Steve Missler, Maine Public's chief political correspondent. This week, the Pulse team joined Maine Calling for its year in review program. And what you're about to hear is a lightly edited version of that live broadcast with Maine Calling host Jennifer Rooks, political correspondent Kevin Miller, and myself as we discuss the big stories in Maine politics and what to look for in 2023. It was, of course, an election year in which everyone expected a close race for the governor's office. It didn't turn out that way. Steve, was some time to reflect. What's your takeaway on Janet Mills' victory over Paula Page? Well, first of all, Jen, I think, let me just say that I never anticipated that Governor Mills would beat LePage by more than 13 percentage points. And I don't even think Governor Mills thought she would win by that much. And she recently told me that she felt pretty good about her chances heading into Election Day. But I think it's helpful to think about that race in the larger context of Maine and national politics. I mean, all across the country, we saw Democrats defeat Republican candidates that were either backed by former President Donald Trump associated with him in some way, or in LePage's case, resembled his sort of uh, style and and conduct. And I think um, that's why we're reading so much about the GOP finally giving up on Trump. And I'll just have to wait to see if that actually happens. I mean, I know LePage's campaign billed him as a changed politician, but I think his transformation, to the extent that there was one, was a little bit too close to his two terms as governor which were pretty much unforgettable and for reasons that weren't helpful to his bid for a third non-consecutive term. Uh, His controversies eclipsed his policy achievements. And I think there were other factors in this race that I think helped Democrats like Mills this year, abortion rights being a huge one. Um, But I also think there were a lot of other, there were a lot of voters, uh, including the ever crucial independent electorate who just didn't want the chaos and theatrics And there's some evidence of that in a post-election poll of Maine voters by the University of New Hampshire that came out fairly recently. And it showed that things like inflation and abortion were definitely top of mind for voters, but so was defeating Trumpism or MAGA or whatever you want to call it. And so overall, I think you can't assign uh, Mills's victory to any one factor, but several. And as one Republican legislator recently told me, it was basically a perfect storm for the GOP. Kevin, the race for the second congressional district was decided by ranked choice voting again. But this time, Jared Golden will return to Congress with a Republican majority. Where does he fit in in the new Congress? Yeah, that's right, Jen. Uh, Kind of going back to the election, this was pretty much a repeat of the 2018 contest between Representative Golden and former Congressman Bruce Poliquin and then independent Tiffany Bond. While it still went to the ranked choice runoff, Golden ended up beating Poliquin by a much larger by a much larger margin this time around, and this raise drew a lot of outside money. I think it's about twenty two million dollars because it was part of this bigger battle for control of the House. As far as kind of where he fits in, uh, I think Golden's win obviously allowed Democrats to keep that Republican majority uh, somewhat narrower in the House next year. And you know what does that mean for Golden? Well. It, He's already one of the more moderate Democrats in the House. You know, he campaigned uh, very aggressively on that, and often referred to himself as an independent voice in Washington, even though he's a Democrat. 
And kind of throughout his campaign, he pointed to all the times that he voted against President Biden's agenda or or opposite of Speaker Pelosi. He, he was also teamed up with other Democrats and moderates at times to block legislation or to win concessions from the Democratic leadership. We won't know for sure kind of what will happen in the next Congress, but I would say that it's a pretty good argument that with Republicans still holding a fairly slim majority, I think less than 10 seat advantage over Democrats, he's still in a position to do much of the same next year and to have some influence if he can, especially if he can partner up with other moderate uh, Democrats and moderate Republicans to, to try to gain some influence over some of these big policy discussions. Let's talk about the future of both political parties in Maine. Steve, after the Democrats kept the Blaine House, both congressional districts, and the Maine House and Senate, are the Republicans soul-searching? What's next for the GOP in Maine? Well, I think that's the, the biggest question heading into the next year, really, Jen. I mean, 2022, it was a terrible year for Maine Republicans. Just That just can't be overstated. You know, remember, p- people were talking about this election being a Republican wave election, pretty much up until the votes were counted in November. And it obviously turned out much differently. And I think that raises some questions about the conservative movement overall, but specifically about the main GOP. And that's because, you know, Trumpism, LePageism, whatever you want to call it, is the dominant force in the party apparatus by design. I mean, LePage and his supporters have had an iron grip on the state party for nearly a decade. They cleared the field for him to run for a third non-consecutive term. He helped train the legislative candidates, some of whom were elected and are in the legislature this year. His loyalists held key positions in the party, and this was supposed to be his triumphant return. So now what? I don't know. I mean, I think right now there's a power vacuum and some people or movements are going to try to fill it. And whether that results in a harder right turn than what we've seen or something more toward the middle is really the big question. And I think a turn toward moderation will be actually be quite difficult because a lot of the centrist Republicans uh, that were in the party before were purged from the party because they were either framed as disloyal to LePage or Trump. So I think that's the big question that the main Republican Party is confronting. And I don't think that anybody really has an answer, including the main Republican Party at the moment anyway. And Kevin, although the Democrats do hold all the seats of power in state government right now, the party still has some significant divisions, doesn't it? Yeah, there are divisions, that's to to be sure, um, uh, between the more progressive wing of the party and moderates. Although the number of moderates seems to be shrinking in Maine politics as it is nationally, I think one of the things we've seen in recent elections, which is really interesting, is that Democrats have been able to really firm up their their dominance in southern coastal Maine and suburban areas, which is, of course, the more populated parts of the state. But they've really lost ground in legislative seats in more rural areas. Um, I, I believe that Senate President Troy Jackson will be the only Democrat representing Arista County the next session. But you know, back to these divisions within the party, Governor Mills is is a moderate Democrat, and she's been uh, sort of a moderating force, if you will, uh, to hold in check the progressives in the legislature in the past couple of years. I fully expect that we'll probably continue to see that. Um, she's clashed on multiple issues with the new House Speaker, Representative Rachel Talbot Ross of Portland, and she's also clashed often with uh, Senate President Troy Jackson. You know, he likes to talk about he that she's vetoed more bills of his than than anybody else. 
Um, so it'll be interesting to see how these dynamics play out between Mills, who again is, is more moderate than than a lot of the, the more progressive legislators who are in the state house. Let's talk about that new Maine legislature. The first day of the session in December is usually all formalities, and the legislature doesn't really get to real business until January. But Steve, that's not how this 131st legislature started, was it? No, and and the reason for that, Jen, is the the state is confronting a series of crises that are actually setting the legislative agenda for the new legislature in a lot of ways. And we saw that on day one when Governor Mills proposed this nearly half billion dollar heating and housing relief bill that she hoped would pass on swearing in days. That's something that hasn't happened in nearly three decades. Now, ultimately, that bill didn't get the supermajority support that it needed to pass as an emergency because eight Republican senators decided to block it. And I think their decision to do so is illustrative of their current predicament. Um, and, and that's basically, they have a couple of choices. Do they try to work with Mills and the Democrats or do they fight like hell even though their power is limited? And you know, and we saw both approaches on day one. I mean, we had the House Republican caucus uh, basically negotiate with the governor and where they were able to get concessions in that heating and housing bill. And on the other hand, you had Senate Republicans fight for this public hearing, which was held yesterday, uh, which ultimately resulted in no changes to the bill. So it's going to be tough for GOP legislators to find their path this year. Um, Democrats, of course, have their own problems, as Kevin was just alluding to, uh, mainly balancing the ambitions of its more progressive wing against those who prefer a more centrist approach, which just happens to be the approach that Governor Mills prefers. Kevin, in addition to the home heating relief that Steve was talking about, what do you expect to be the top issues this session? Well, I think we'll definitely see a lot of attention paid to the other big energy issue in Maine right now, and that's electricity prices. Mainers are paying about triple uh, what they did just a few years ago for portions of their electric bill. And that's because the price of electricity here in New England is directly tied to the price of natural gas. Uh, you know, because of that link, there's really only so much that state lawmakers or the governor can do about electricity prices. But that doesn't mean they won't try, or at least they'll uh, talk about it quite a bit. Um, one uh, another one would be the cost of housing. The state is definitely facing an affordable housing crisis. That was part of the emergency bill that that Steve just discussed. And that had about 20, $21 million to help avoid evictions. But that's only going to go so far. Uh, the legislature did pass a bill earlier this year that encourages towns to, to allow more high-density zoning to encourage development of affordable housing. But uh, advocates say that a lot more is needed to be done. A few other quick things. I expect we'll see some more legislation related to the forever chemicals known as uh, PFAS. Uh, back on electricity, actually, uh, there's likely to be a debate about changing the solar energy incentives program to make sure that ratepayers don't have to pick up the bill for all of these uh, solar farms that are popping up all over the state. And then, I guess, lastly, and this is, I think, a really potentially big one, Maine's judicial system is is legitimately in a crisis right now. Uh, the courts are backlogged uh, because of the pandemic. They can't hire enough staff to to get through that backlog. And then Maine's indigent legal defense system is, you know, by some some accounts, is failing to meet its constitutional obligation to provide adequate representation to to low income defendants. So there seems to be strong bipartisan recognition that something needs to be done on this front. The question is what, 
and how much lawmakers are going to be willing to pay to do it. It's a lot. Senator Collins has made national news this month for two measures she co-sponsored, the Marriage Equality Bill and the Electoral Count Act. Steve, talk about the significance of these bills and, and her role in passing them. Yeah, I think there's no question that both bills are important. No question. Uh, one of them effectively enshrines federal protections that allow same-sex and interracial couples to marry. And that was necessary because some conservatives on the Supreme Court had signaled uh, back when they overturned Roe versus Wade that they might be willing to overturn a 2015 decision by the court that found that those protections were a constitutional right. Um, and the other bill is basically designed to prevent the situation that helped create the conditions for the January 6th attack on the U.S. Capitol. That's because it clarifies the process of counting electoral votes, which Trump and his allies had attempted to exploit in the run-up to the attack on the Capitol. And look, this this will pain some Democrats to hear, but Collins played a pretty important role in getting those bills over the finish line. It was her work with Democratic Senator Tammy Baldwin that helped garner GOP supports in the Senate for the marriage equality bill. And you know, President Joe Biden even thanked her for it during the uh, signing ceremony. And she worked with Democratic Senator Joe Manchin to get the Electoral Count Act overhaul into place and that so that it could win bipartisan support. So both of these measures are popular with the American public, which I'm sure was one of the reasons these bills made it. But Collins was in the thick of crafting both, and there's no denying that. Kevin, what kind of role do you see Senator Collins playing in the new Senate? Well, because Democrats still control the Senate by a razor-thin margin, I suspect that, that Senator Collins will continue to try to operate as this dealmaker or a, a crucial swing vote. That's a role that she's really carved out for herself in the past, uh, in recent years. And while she certainly has her critics on the left and the right, uh, the fact that she was heavily involved in these two bills that that uh, you and Steve just dis discussed on codifying protections for same-sex marriage and reforming the presidential electoral counting process, you know, that shows that she can she can be a big player. Had Republicans taken control of the Senate, she actually would have become the chairwoman of the Senate Appropriations Committee, which is one of the most powerful committee positions in all of Congress because appropriations decides how to spend the federal money. But, you know, Senator Collins will still be the top ranking Republican on that committee, which puts her in a position to to influence decisions and, and probably guide more money back to Maine. Mm. Um, briefly, Steve, what about Senator King? Yeah, I'm not sure, Jen, that his role will change all that much in the new Senate. I mean, he's generally considered a pretty reliable vote on most issues Democrats care about. Um, he's not like, say, Senator Joe Manchin of West Virginia, who often stakes out positions uh, designed to to appease basically a more conservative constituency. Uh, same goes for Arizona Senator Kirsten Cinema, who's actually no longer a Democrat and is officially an independent. Now there are three Indies in the Senate, including Senator King and, of course, uh, Bernie Sanders in Vermont. You know that said, I think Senator King will try to make a lot of news in the coming year, and that's because he has signaled his intention to run for a third term, and that means he'll have to continue his streak of keeping. Main independent voters happy and most Democrats happy. It's not always easy to do, but Senator King has demonstrated an aptitude for it over his long political career. And Kevin, finally, as a liberal Democrat, is there still a way for Shelley Pingree to have an impact in this Republican-led Congress or House? Well, Republican-led House. I, 
Yeah. Well, well, unlike in in the Senate, where the minority party can use the filibuster to to block legislation or or force majority to make concessions, uh, in the House, it's it really is uh, truly majority rule. In many ways, we can actually thank former a former House Speaker uh, from Maine, Thomas Brackett Reed, for that. But that would be a, a topic for another day. Uh, but there, there's really no dispute that the minority party has a much harder time of getting things done in the House. And Representative Pingree does hail from the more progressive wing of the party. Uh, but she's been in this position before uh, during her decade plus time in Congress. And she does have some seniority at the committee level, including on the House Appropriations Committee. And both here at the main uh, state house and in Congress, a lot of the work happens at the committee level. And that's Maine's Political Pulse for this week. A reminder that The Pulse is taking next week off, but we'll be back in the new year. Remember, you can subscribe to The Pulse wherever you get your podcasts, and also that we offer a weekly newsletter that comes out Friday mornings. You can subscribe to it at mainepublic.org pulse. Also, have a safe and happy holiday. We'll talk to you soon.